Welcome back to the Department 12 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina, and joining me tonight is Dr. Jeff Dalkey. How's it going, Jeff? It's going all right. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, but I'm not doing as good as you're doing because very recently, uh, I think May 1st, you defended your dissertation. So congratulations on that. Thank you. So the subject of tonight's show is about that sort of dissertation journey um, and what it's like, because I have a lot of listeners who are maybe early in their graduate school careers or either undergraduates considering going on for a, a PhD. And the whole process can seem a little mysterious until you're doing it. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, if that's OK. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe you could just start. So maybe just start with um, maybe a thumbnail sketch of, of what your dissertation was about. So my dissertation was about differential prediction. And basically what that means is I'm interested in whether if you use a predictor like a cognitive ability test to predict performance for different subgroups. So think about different groups uh, differentiated by race, by sex, and you want to determine whether that predictor functions the same way in predicting a given criterion across those groups. Uh, so I had a set of four studies. Some of them were methodological. I was deriving some effect size measures uh, that are expansions of existing measures. Um, I did some work showing what happens when you have a multi-predictor a multi -predictor system and what happens to differential prediction when you use multiple predictors together. And I showed what happens in terms of generalizability, when you look at differential prediction across different colleges and universities in an academic uh, selection scenario. Very cool. So when you think back to when you started uh, your graduate school career, was that a topic that you had in mind from the start or is that something that sort of developed as you went along? It definitely was something that I was curious about, but I didn't know much about differential prediction when I started grad school. And I, even after my master's, I knew what it was and how to test for it, but I didn't really have a good grasp of what I would do to add to that literature because um, that that's a literature that went through a long period of silence. There wasn't much being done on it um, from, I would say, the late 80s until about 2010 when an influential paper popped up and got people thinking about it again. So that's an aspect of the dissertation that, you know, I would kind of reinforce for any listeners out there who are considering going down the uh, the doctoral road is that, you know, what you're supposed to be doing, at least with a with a Ph.D. in a research based uh, dissertation is making some real contribution to the literature, contribution to the field. And that's one of the reasons that it's such a, a big, fat, scary <laughs> uh, prospect is that, you know, you're you're out to, to make some contribution to help us learn something or know something that we didn't know before. That's one of the reasons that it's uh, such, it can be such a daunting process. I wonder how long uh, was that process for you from, you know, beginning of master's till, you know, you, you defended in May. Um, so I, I took a total of six years um, and I did my master's and PhD at different institutions. So it wasn't the case where, I'm doing a master's as a milestone on the way of the PhD. I did a terminal master's degree at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Uh, and then I did my PhD at University of Minnesota. 
Okay. Well, that's interesting. Now, you, you did a terminal master's. At the time that you took the terminal master's, was it in the back of your mind that, hey, maybe I'll, I'll take this further? Or was your intention at the time, hey, let's just do the terminal master's and, 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 and go, move on from there? When it when I started and I was applying to grad schools, uh, I, I've gone through phases in my career where I started out wanting to be a practitioner. Uh, and then when I got to my master's program, uh, I, I was unsuccessful in uh, applying to, to getting into PhD programs the first round. Um, and I ended up going to uh, Mankato, which is a phenomenal master's program. Um, but I didn't really know at that point when I started there, if I was going to continue on uh, and try again. But then like, I think it was like a month or two into my time there that the professors initiated the conversation with me about continuing uh, even before I had voiced any interest in, in doing it. So after I knew that I had their blessing, that became my, I, I started carrying that torch again. And, and I applied to PhD programs my second year and, and got into my main, my, my favorite one, the one that I attended. That's great. And, and it's great to hear that your, uh, you know, the, the faculty and your master's program were so encouraging. That, that's kind of a theme that, that comes up a lot. And I talked to, um, early career IO psychologists is, um, you know, not sure if I can do this and, you know, an inspiring conversation or two comes along and really pushes you in the right direction. And that's something I would maybe try to highlight for any, uh, academics, uh, any, especially any instructors listening is that you don't really, you know, you have an incredible amount of power <laughs> with an encouraging word to change somebody's life. So you went on for, uh, your, your doctorate and, you know, there's a coursework and uh, I assume you did a, um, a, a comps. Absolutely. Yeah. So th that's another kind of mysterious thing, I guess, for a lot of uh, new graduate students, what are comps? What are they like? Uh, so comps uh, also called prelims are your exams that you take when you're done with coursework as a doctoral student, you take like in Minnesota, I think most places it's a three years of coursework and then you take, comps, uh, which are your preliminary exams. And uh, they're typically, there's a written component and um, an oral component, and it, it varies widely from place to place. So I can speak about what we did at Minnesota. Sure. Um, I had six essays that I had to write over a one-week period. It was like a big open book take-home exam where w this one morning that you've agreed on that comps will start, you get emailed a list of six questions. Three are tailored to you. Three are general for everybody who's taking comps during that session. And you respond to these questions in a five page, I think it's five page paper. So you're writing six, five page papers in response to these, these questions that you didn't know what they were going to be until they showed up in your inbox. So tell me a little bit about what that was like for you. I mean, was it, um, you know, like you get some stories about comps and people really sweat them out. How difficult did you find it on, you know, on a scale from one to 10? A scale from one to 10. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't Super know. Super exact. I would, so I'll preface my answer by saying that I was more nervous the day before comp started than any day during the process. Uh, uh, the anxiety about not knowing what was 
coming. I didn't know what the questions were going to be. That was really nerve wracking. But then when I knew what they were, I realized, hey, I can do this. It's not so bad. I'll survive. Um, I can make this work. Um, so it was just a, it's a big time commitment. It's writing papers is something that you should be really good at by the time comps comes around. And you should know the literatures pretty well that you can search for stuff in the databases online. You know where to look for uh, evidence to support uh, your ideas in, in a paper. So it's just a compressed timeline for something that you're already pretty good at doing by that point. Uh, and it's, it's just diligence at that point where you have to work, you know, I'd say like 12 hours, 14 hours a day during that week to, to really get those papers polished and written to be something that you're proud of. Yeah. And, and as you pointed out, this varies a lot from institution to institution, but there's usually some, you know, some aspect of, of writing papers and, you know, it's usually within a compressed timeline. And my experience was very similar to yours and that the scariest moments are right before and then waiting for the grade to come back. Um, but, but while you're actually doing it, you're so um, engrossed in what you're doing that there's really little mental bandwidth left for anxiety. Yeah. As long as you create milestones for yourself, like my goal was to write one paper a day. And I did that and I had a day left over to revise and make sure that everything was, you know, grammatically correct. And I didn't have any glaring typos or errors. Um, and, and other places, other schools do comps in a much different format. Like you said, where uh, some of them you come in and it's closed book and you sit in a room for a whole day or two writing in a proctored environment um, and some places are take home like I had. So it, it's a pretty wide range of possibilities. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, by the time you get there, you're pretty skilled, hopefully, at writing papers and, you know, finding uh, peer reviewed sources to, to support the evidence that you're giving in those papers. And it's good preparation for the dissertation process, which is what comes right after comps. So could you t just walk us through very briefly what the milestones were in your dissertation process? Yeah, so after the the written prelim, there's actually one thing before um, the dissertation, at, at least at Minnesota, that's the oral prelim exam, which is where you defend your written answers. Um, so and that I found that the, the exams, uh, the written and oral exams were more stressful than the dissertation itself. So that's my preface to talking about the dissertation. Uh, but the dissertation process involves you coming up with an idea for a paper. Uh, it, it's basically a big bloated paper that's book length that should make in some way a contribution to the literature. And sometimes it's something new. Sometimes you're expanding on something Sometimes you are compiling studies that you've done over the years of grad school. That's a popular model among some of uh, my colleagues uh, in grad school, where you're not just starting out fresh, picking up a new topic from scratch. You're uh, creating a string of pearls that you discovered along the way throughout your PhD program. And that, that helps to move things along more quickly because you've already got some of the work done. So what, just talk a little bit about the role of your advisor or your committee throughout this process. What was it like for you at, at your institution? So the topics get picked uh, by the student 
working with their advisor. And then the student um, under the supervision of their advisor will create a proposal. So it's like your the intro chapter of your dissertation. You write your proposal and when it's ready, then you send it out to your committee and your committee will read it and then you'll meet to talk about it. And you'll give a presentation about what it is that you're doing, what what you are going to do. And basically it's an opportunity to get their blessing on your research plan. And if they say everything's good to go, then that's kind of like a promise that if you do what you said you were going to do, that you're going to pass, that there won't be any surprises when your defense comes around. And it's not your fault if things don't turn out the way that you thought they were going to, if your hypotheses aren't supported, as long as you did what you said you were going to do, what more could they ask? Uh, So it's an opportunity to get their feedback on methodology, on like what types of samples you're going to recruit, what types of measures you'll use, what types of, like if you're doing a meta-analysis, what your inclusion criteria are, anything like that, that might be something that would be a stumbling block later on when they're evaluating the quality of the end product, they get the chance to say whether it passes the the sniff test at the proposal meeting, and then you get to correct any of those deficiencies before you proceed. Yeah, and that's a really key thing to keep in mind is that um, you know, when you don't know what this process is like, you might imagine that it's, you know, you write this big thing and then you take it to a defense and then they can either accept it or reject it. But, you know, that's obviously not the first time they're seeing this work. So your advisor and your committee are you know, providing you input along the way and especially, most especially during that proposal. Did you change anything substantially uh, from what you planned as a result of what you learned in your proposal meetings? I don't think so. Um, I had been working pretty diligently on my topic and I, it was an amalgamation of things that I had been compiling for a couple of years and I was just pulling them all together and there were a couple of new studies in there, but I'd been thinking about it really uh, quite diligently for a long time and working with my advisor on it. So there weren't any big things that needed to be changed. There were a few things about scope or phrasing or how to tie this into the broader literature on a topic, but there wasn't, wasn't anything substantial. So that's going to vary a lot from, from person to person. Um, you know, a lot of times it's just like, like your experience was that you've got it more or less in the bag by the time you get to the proposal. But, you know, I do hear from people who get some surprises (laughs) in the proposal or even afterwards where, you know, there's changes to, uh, sometimes even changes to methodology that are suggested and things like that somewhat late in the game. So it's not unheard of, but, um, it's not also as, as common, um, as maybe the horror stories would have us believe. So you get your proposal uh, approved. They give you some feedback. So you're working on you know the studies and writing them up. And like you said, it ends up being this great big book length thing with a lot of repetition. <laughs> they, you know, they're looking for alignment. So they want to make sure all the sections are referring to all the other sections. And, you know, one thing I would uh, suggest to to graduate students is uh, as painful as it might be, read some other dissertations, particularly those at your institution to get a feel for what they look like, because they're not really like anything else you've ever read. They're not like peer reviewed studies that you're reading in journals, which is sort of the meat and potatoes of of what we do. They're a lot more elaborated and a lot more explicated and things like that. So you can get a sense of, of what they're looking for. 
so you you get through this and you you know you write your draft and, and you get all the way to this dissertation defense now this is probably uh, the event that is most confusing to people uh, and understanding what it is and what it's for and it's you know when people think about a dissertation this is the thing that that brings beads of sweat up on their forehead so could you just tell us a little bit about what your defense was like you know was it a meeting who was there uh, what did you talk about my defense uh, was a meeting with just me and my committee and at at the University of Minnesota uh, all dissertation defenses are public but that just means that they have to be announced it doesn't mean that people are actually going to show up. And if people had asked me, Hey, Jeff, should I come to your defense? I would have said no. Um, because <laughs> throw a beach my, ball around, do the wave. Yeah. yeah well, it wasn't even a matter of nerves or not wanting an audience. It was that if nobody showed up, it's just me and my committee and we can get through stuff faster and, yeah. and I don't have to, you know, give my whole presentation over again because my proposal meeting consisted of three completed studies and one uh, proposed study. So my committee had already seen my presentation about three whole completed studies. And if nobody showed up to my defense, then I could just talk about study four uh, and save them the burden of, of listening to all that content again. <laughs> so that's another uh, kind of common thing. And uh, even, you know, um, I, I did uh, my dissertation through North Central University, which is uh, entirely online. And, and even there, the, the dissertation defenses are public in the sense that there's a schedule printed and you can dial in. Anybody's part of the university community could dial right in and listen to that. I don't know too many people who do that for fun. So I also didn't have any looky-loos in my uh, defense. Um, but I, I think my experience was similar to yours in that by the time I got to the defense, I wasn't really afraid of any curveballs, you know. I, the thing about the defense is that it's it's the big thing at the end, and that's where we we tend our nerves tend to accumulate uh, when we're early in the process. But I think your experience is pretty common in that the hard work has already been done by the time you get there, and it's unlikely unless you get you know, sort of a last minute committee change. Or something like that, that someone's going to throw a curveball at you that, that causes you to, to go back. You might have some, you know, minor uh, revisions uh, to submit. Did you have anything like that? Yeah, very minor. Uh, just uh, some things that my co-advisor wanted me to include that uh, were just basically like, if somebody were to create a bullet point summary of my dissertation, what's the thing that they would take away from each study? So I just added a very clear sentence at the end of each discussion section that was the hit home point so that that's a, he recommended that I include that sentence that I want them to take away in the, the, the closing comments of each study. So that was the main thing that I had to do. So it was, it was very minor revisions. So I, th I think you, you created a pretty clear picture of what the experience was like for you when you think about yourself, um, you know, maybe when you were just starting your master's degree or maybe in that transition period where you were trying to figure out whether, you know, you were going to, to stick with a terminal master's or move on to the Ph.D., what advice would you give yourself then? About considering going for the Ph.D.? Well, just about the whole process. You know, what would you tell yourself? What do you wish you had known then what you know now? Um, it's going to go quick. <laughs> uh, it feels like just yesterday that I was 
entering grad school to begin with. So things go quickly and you imagine that it's going to be this big, long process and that everything's going to take forever. And it some, it feels like it does in the, in the moment, but at the end of it, it feels like it just flew by. Um, so that's, that's just kind of an experiential aspect of it. But I think in terms of like actual workload, I think I knew what to expect that it's going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to put in the time. You're going to have to make sacrifices in your personal life sometimes to make it all work out. Um, but if you keep your nose to the grindstone and you take things seriously, it's going to pay off. Jeff, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me.